Well, good morning, family. I invite you to take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we started there last week and we're going to continue for the next couple of weeks here uh, in Genesis 3. There was a pastor who went to visit one of his uh, church members one day, went to the house, went up to the door, rang the doorbell, and uh, stood there for an embarrassingly long time waiting for somebody to answer the door. Nobody ever did. So he took out a, his billfold, got a, one of his business cards, wrote on there a little note. He wrote, uh, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The next Sunday after service, he uh, went back to his office and noticed there on his desk was uh, just a little piece of paper. And uh, on it was simply... Scribbled Genesis 3, 8. And he opened his Bible and looked at it and it said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid and I hid myself because I was naked. <laughs> that's in our passage this morning. That, that's, I think it's exciting as it gets, but let's, uh, let's turn there. Genesis chapter 3. We've noted here in, uh, in our study in Genesis that mankind is not evolving. Man is not getting better and better day by day and year by year and generation by generation evolving to our heights. That is evolutionary hope uh, by evolutionists, but it is not biblical truth. We are created by God. The Bible tells us that we are not evolving to something better, but we have fallen. We have fallen from the heights, from the pinnacle of our existence where God made us perfect in His design. We noted last week, and by the way, we do have a future and a destiny, and we're going to get there in a couple of weeks. But we noted last week that this chapter 3 of Genesis is the saddest chapter in all of the Bible because that fall of man begins here. Eve was tempted by Satan to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And she did. She and Adam ate together and the first sin that first sin was the downfall of the human race. It corrupted all of mankind and it unleashed a torrent which continues to flood our world with evil, with suffering, with sickness, and with death. Today and next week as we continue here in chapter 3, we'll be looking at some of the fallout, some of the consequences of that sin. So follow along with me. I pick up, actually our text begins in verse 7. I'm just going to go back to verse 6, get a little review of last week and uh, read through verse 13. Follow along. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. 
And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Here we have the first of the consequences, the first of the results that happened after Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the eating of that fruit. I want to call our attention, there's so many things in this passage we could note, but this morning, just four things in this verses, four consequences of their sin that I believe deserve our attention because sin still does these things to us today. Eve had heard the promises that Satan had made. She bought the lie. She ate the fruit. Adam may or may not have been passively listening in to the whole exchange between the serpent, Satan, and Eve. But he was certainly with her, our text tells us, when she ate. And he certainly joined right in when she passed it to him. And then together they wait for the promised results. Great expectations. They waited for the euphoria. They waited for the great gain of great wisdom. They waited to become like God. But there was no great satisfaction to be had. No godlike feeling that was on the way. Instead came the greatest anticlimax the greatest letdown of human history. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Remember we talked last week about that dream of being naked in public? (laughs) What a relief it is when you wake up and find out that it was only a dream. Except when Adam and Eve woke up, they found they weren't dreaming They got woke. (laughs) Their eyes were indeed open to something new, but it wasn't something wonderful. It wasn't godlike. It wasn't great wisdom. All they suddenly realize is that they are naked. They now know good and evil, but they discover that they don't just know evil, they are evil. Their evil is exposed and they realize they are guilty. That is the great revelation that has come with this sin. 
It is the reality of guilt. By the way, the reality of sin always is this. The joy, the excitement, the high uh, of sin is always short-lived. And its gains, its supposed benefits, its pleasures are always overhyped. And there's always a bill and it's always more than we thought. And the first expense on Adam and Eve's bill for their sin is guilt. Their consciences have been activated. Activated when they were sinned. Someone described the conscience as a false alarm. Not F-A-L-S-E, but F-A-U-L-T-S. A false alarm. It goes off to tell us our faults. When it goes off, we often tend to act just like they did. There's this nagging voice that's saying, guilty, guilty, guilty. And we look to cover it up as soon as possible because guilt, you see, leads to a second problem, which is shame, a second consequence. Their guilt was so real and so overwhelming, they were sure it could be seen. The problem, of course, really wasn't their physical nakedness. They recognized they were naked, meaning they are exposed. They had been naked all along and it was fine. From the minute that God made them, they were naked, unashamed. After sin on the outside, nothing had changed. They were still physically perfect. Their problem wasn't external. Their problem was internal. They were guilty. It was internal. But along with guilt comes shame. The fear that their guilt will be exposed. The sin that their flaws will be seen. That's what shame is. Fear about what others will think, what others will do. Whatever will happen when others realize that I'm guilty, I'm flawed, I'm messed up. Along with guilt comes shame. And so it says, verse 7, they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths. They rightly sensed that along with their guilt, they needed something to cover them, something to, to deal with this problem of guilt that was internal. They try to, their, their first remedy is to try to make some clothes. Their first attempt was pretty lame, pretty feeble. I've never tried to make clothes out of leaves. I don't know if you have. But I can only imagine that they don't work very well. And I pretty well guarantee they're not very comfortable. This is man's first attempt to solve a spiritual problem by human effort. And it was pretty lame. May I say, so it always is, it never works to deal with a spiritual problem by human effort. See, psychologists today recognize that guilt is one of the great problems that plagues mankind. One of people's greatest issues is guilt. The problem is with psychology, they really don't know what to do with it. Psychology makes two feeble attempts, I would say, at dealing with guilt. 
The first tactic they use is denial. You feel guilty, but you shouldn't. There is no reason to feel guilt. And at its extreme, what they say is there's no reason to feel guilt because actually, truthfully, there is no wrong. Nothing is wrong. You see, the evolutionary viewpoint is we're all freaks of nature. Accidents. They just happen when some chemicals happen to get together and create a few little compounds all purely by accident. And then they're sitting around in this primordial soup and lightning hits it and boom! A little spark of life that over millions and millions of years evolved into you. And if that's the case, there's no such thing as right and wrong, as good and evil. Those are all just constructs of social interaction, of society. And, and the only reason you feel guilt is because you've been made to feel guilty by a society that has built it into your psyche. You just need to get over it. See, deny it. You feel guilty, but you shouldn't. The other way they try to deal with that we'll see in a few moments is simply by shifting the blame. First, you shouldn't feel guilty because there is no real guilt. And secondly, it's not your fault. It's your mother. It's always the mother. Or your father. <laughs> or it's your fourth grade teacher or whomever else. It's somebody else's fault. You shouldn't feel guilty because you are a victim. Well, those are psychology's tactics. But the Bible, this passage, teaches us that guilt and shame are real, and they are real because sin is real. Sin is real because sin is, is a violation. It is a, an affront. It is a disobedience. It is a rebellion against God. And against God and His design. That is the rest of the story of the Bible is God providing a solution to man's sin. God provides a payment for sin, forgiveness from sin, and restoration through Jesus Christ. That's the story of the Scriptures in a nutshell. It begins here and it unfolds until, as we will see in a few weeks, the wonderful end of the story and a great restoration for all of those whom God has redeemed through Christ. Sin brings guilt and shame, but it is also possible for someone to deny their conscience and to suppress their conscience for so long that they no longer hear its voice nor feel guilt and shame. And it's a tragic thing. And it can happen individually. It can also happen as a culture. The Bible tells us this, God speaking to His own people, Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 3, God laments that His people have become so sinful that they refuse to blush at the grossness of their sin. They refuse to have shame. He says there that you, you have the brazen look of a prostitute, God says, of His own people. You refuse to blush with shame. What a sad thing. 
Paul, the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians describes people who not only aren't ashamed of their sin anymore, but they take pride and glory in the very thing that should bring them shame. He says their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Quite frankly, it sounds a lot like where our society is today. We've moved past shame. We've moved past blushing at sin. And we've moved into glorifying that which should make us ashamed. By the way, shame, as bad as it is, as horrible a consequence it is, it is necessary. The only way that we will ever find the redemption that God has provided is when we realize we need a Savior. We need redemption. That only comes when we are ashamed of our sin. There's a third consequence here in this passage that I see of sin. A consequence of broken relationships. Broken relationships in marriage, in every human relationship, Every problem you have, husbands and wives, in your marriage started right here with sin. Every problem we have with neighbors, every problem we have in our family, in relationship, it all starts here with sin. Sin is ultimately the breaker of relationships. We see it happen here in several things in this passage. I see, for instance... There's a loss of intimacy. We noted back in chapter 2, verse 25, after God created Adam and Eve, it says, and they were both naked and not ashamed. We talked about how it is, it is not only physical nakedness there, but there was, it was all about intimacy. There was perfect and beautiful love and intimacy among them. But now instead of intimacy, the first thing they do is they run for the leaves. They run for the bushes to make clothes. And you ask, to cover themselves from whom? There's only two people. Why are they covering themselves from each other? Because instinctively, they get the trust and security of the relationship is over. That wonderful intimacy of known and being known, of trusting and being trusted, is gone. Now there's stuff to hide. There's guilt. There is shame. The flaws and the guilt that, uh, that they know is inside of them, they realize makes them vulnerable. This flaw makes me vulnerable. I have to hide it. And the sin that is resident in me, I understand, is in the other as well. And because I know me, I realize that now you are dangerous. (laughs) Sin makes us dangerous. And it makes us vulnerable. So I must cover and protect myself. Our sin and our guilt gets in the way of intimate relationship. Makes it difficult. There's no Quaker saying I love. It's, it says this, Me thinks the whole world is crazy except me and thee. 
sometimes I wonder about thee. <laughs> See, it's everybody out there has got problems, but the reality is so do you. And I know all that because so do I. And Loss of intimacy because of sin. But not only was there a loss of intimacy, there was a loss of unity. You recall that God created them male and female, and for this reason a man shall leave father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There was to be this one flesh unity in marriage. But now that sin comes along, instead of being an inseparable team, it's every man for himself. A couple of examples show up in the text. As God comes down in verse 12 and He begins questioning Adam, we hear God ask Adam, did you eat of the fruit that I commanded you not to eat? By the way, He comes to Adam first because Adam is the head, he's the leader. But what was Adam's response? Oh God, I'm so sorry. I blew it. I shouldn't have done that, but I did. No, what's his response? <laughs> the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. First thing he does, throws her under the bus. See, if there was any doubt that we needed to cover ourselves, to protect ourselves, because we're vulnerable now and the other person is dangerous, if there was any doubt, that phrase right there proves it. He can't be trusted. This is why they need leaves. Eve, for her part, instead of admitting her guilt when God says, Eve, what did you do? It wasn't me. It was the serpent. He tempted me. That loss of unity brings about that thing we've already talked about, blame shifting. It's not my fault. Refuse to admit we're wrong. Blame others in recognizing our own guilt, our own need. It's a tendency we all still have, and it's one of the big reasons why so many of our relationship problems never get fixed. We won't own it. We'll point the finger somewhere else. Another example of their loss of unity, besides blame shifting, we'll see it in actually a verse we'll look at next week. It's in next week's passage, but we won't have time to look at this next week, so I'll look at it this week. Verse 16 and in just a preview, next week we'll look as this passage continues, God moves on to explain the consequences, the judgments that are coming because of sin. And he talks, he addresses the serpent, he addresses Adam, he addresses Eve. When he addresses Eve, it's an interesting phrase in what he says down in verse 16. It says, you look there. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, if you go look at the commentaries, you'll find a lot of theologians have a lot of different opinions about what this means. It's a difficult passage to understand. Some, over the years, over the centuries, a few have really missed the whole point. They have said here that this is describing in many ways the way things should be. And husbands should rule over their wives. That's not at all what it is. 
In every case, as God speaks, He speaks of the judgments that's going to happen and He talks about have the bad things that will happen because of sin rather than the way things should be. It's not prescriptive, it's descriptive of the, how sin is going to corrupt and infect and, and destroy. And this is talking about the marriage relationship. And that word, the husband shall rule over you, is literally the word to dominate. It's not a real positive word. The real question, though, the theologians have, the debate they have, is this thing, desire. Your desire shall be for your husband. What does that mean? Without taking time to look at other things, I'll just simply tell you what I think it means, and you can sort it out on your own. The word is only used one other place, and that's the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 7. We're speaking to Cain. It says, sin desires to rule or to master you, but you must, you must dominate or you must not let that happen is what it's trying to say. All that to say this. Here's how I think it works out. The description is because of sin, Your desire, Eve, will be to master or dominate or control your husband. But he will dominate you. What he's describing is not the way things should be, but exactly what sin is going to do to the marriage relationship. And what he has perfectly described is what we observe around us, and it is the battle of the sexes. Sin has corrupted headship leadership into domination. And women, because of sin, will turn submission and partnership into rebellion. A desire to usurp, to take the position of leadership. Sin is going to take the unity that God designed for husband and wife, that that inseparable team, and it's turning it into a battleground. And so it has been throughout human history. That's why it's such a challenge in marriage for us to put this together, to go back to the design. Here's what God designed. But that's. So it's turned unity into competition and control. There's a fourth consequence here in these verses. There's guilt, there's shame, there's broken relationships. In verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The, The almost casual mention of the fact that God Himself comes down in the cool of the day, late afternoon, evening, and walks in the garden the very casual mention of it seems to indicate that it's a, it's a common thing. It's the status quo, the normal event of a late afternoon or evening. God comes down to visit with Adam and Eve. The afternoon chat. The evening social call. point is, That was then, but it's not now. The relationship with God is broken. Instead of sweet fellowship, there is alienation from God. 
There's a break in the relationship from this time on. Because of sin, this kind of fellowship with, between God and man is broken and never again restored in human history. That is, until we get to the end of the book. At the very end of the story, Revelation chapter 21, and again, we'll go there in a couple of weeks. There we discover Revelation 21. Now the dwelling of God is with men. And He will live with them and they will be His people. There's the destiny. Right now there's alienation, separation from God. But there's coming a day when we will see Him face to face. Not only will He come for a visit, but we will live with Him. Isn't that awesome? But the consequence of sin is this fellowship that we had with God, that man had with God from the beginning is broken. We see it as Adam in verse 8. God comes looking for that fellowship. But Adam, the Bible tells us in verse 8, is hiding. It's like parents, we know what it is. Most of you, if you've been a parent, you, you know what it is to come home or to walk in the room and you see your kids there. And you can tell immediately from the way that their head is down or their shoulders are slumped or that they're hiding under the coffee table or they are incommunicado, they won't talk or they won't stop talking. They won't look you in the eye. They're shifting around. They're nervous. And all of that, you know, they're guilty. Guilty of something. So it is. Adam and Eve are guilty. And they hide. They're hiding from God. The fellowship is broken. Not only that, verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid there's fear of God. Adam is afraid. There had never been reason to fear God, but now there is. First John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Along with sin comes guilt. Along with guilt comes shame. Because we know that along with that there is punishment. We deserve punishment. Adam is afraid of God because he's exposed. Then, adding to this break in the relationship, Adam even blames God. God says, did you do it? Did you eat of the fruit that I commanded you not to eat? And did you notice he not only throws Eve under the bus, he says, that woman you gave me. That's not coincidental and accidental. Adam is pointing the finger at God. It's not my fault. You did it. The relationship with God has been severed. That's just a few examples. 
we find later the Scripture tells us not only did we is the relationship severed in such small ways, but that we have been joined to the other side. We have become citizens of the kingdom of darkness. We have become, as Romans tells us, we have become enemies of God. That's what sin made us. The relationship is broken. More consequences. We'll see more next week. Death. So many things. In the midst of this awful chapter, though, in human history, there is some good news. God's grace shows up even in the midst of all of this rottenness. Four things I just want to quickly note here that show God's grace. The first is this. Adam and Eve have sinned. They are guilty. They are. They don't know it yet. They are lost in sin. But did you notice this? God came to them. They're even hiding. They don't want to see God. And He comes to them. By the way, the Bible tells us there is not one who seeks after God. We've all turned our own way. Not one of us would ever come seeking God. But He comes seeking us. God didn't have to do that. He could have done what I would have expected Him to do, and that is just wipe us out. God could just take a couple of fingers, as it were, and move the whole universe together. Crumple it up, throw it away. Or just remove His holding power that holds it all together and it simply would explode apart. He could just take proverbially, proverbially His foot and squash us like bugs, but He didn't do that. He could have just left them abandoned to their own devices, to their own mess. Even if we wanted to reach out to God, how could we? If He abandoned us, we are helpless. God in His grace came to them. I notice not only that God came to them, but He comes gently asking questions. Not hurling insults or accusations or judgments. He's a, you filthy, rotten sinners, I can't believe how stupid you are. Could you, can you believe you fell for that line? You, rah, 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 rah. He didn't come with thunder and lightning. He comes asking questions. Does he ask questions because he needs information? No, God knows everything. He knows full well what's happened. Why does he ask questions? Give Adam the opportunity to come clean. To draw Adam and Eve out. To admit what they've done. He came gently. But I notice that as God comes gently, He still confronts their sin. And that's actually grace. He doesn't overlook it. He doesn't just say, it's fine. It's no big deal. God is a God of righteousness and justice. He's a God of truth. And He doesn't sugarcoat their problem. 
It is a big deal. He confronts their sin. But He also, as we will discover next time, He provides covering, reconciliation. He doesn't destroy them, but He makes promise. A promise and a provision for restoration, reconciliation. It's good news. The God who sought Adam and Eve out in their sin is the same God who today still looks to save and rescue sinners. It's why Jesus came. Luke chapter 19, Jesus says, speaking of Himself, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Most every one of you, if you've ever heard any verse of the Bible, you've heard John 3.16. Many of you know it by memory. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But do you know the next verse? The next verse goes on to say, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The same God who came gently to Adam and Eve comes gently to you and to me and says, I've come that you might have life. And so, Jesus came. God became man to bear our guilt and shame so that we can have forgiveness from sin and have eternal life. If you're here this morning and have never trusted Jesus as your Savior, please know that Jesus calls to you today and invites you to trust Him. Yes, you're a sinner. But God has provided the remedy. For the rest of us here this morning, just remember this, if there's nothing else to, to learn, and I think there are plenty from this passage, but understand this, sin, sin brings consequences. It brought consequences to Adam and Eve, and it still does to us today. It brings guilt and shame and wrecked relationships. It interferes with our relationship with God. Those realities should cause every one of us here to despise sin, to hate sin, to desire to be rid of it in our life. It's exactly why Jesus said, and it's what He meant when He said in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, Jesus said this, and maybe you've never thought of it this way before, but He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they will be filled. Happy, blessed are the folks whose heartbeat, whose desire is to not live in sin anymore, but to live rightly, to live a holy life. That's what Jesus meant. Blessed are those who make it their aim to live rightly, to live holy. That should be and that's what Jesus calls for us to have as our heartbeat. The aim of our life, that we hunger for it, we thirst for it. And so I just end because I just like the quote so much. I used it last week, but I just have to use it again. From Billy Sunday, listen, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I've got a head. And I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. 
And when I am old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it until I go home to glory and it goes home to perdition. We laugh at it. But it should be a guilty laugh if that's not our own heartbeat. For that ought to be, ought it not. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your mercy and grace that You didn't wipe out Adam and Eve because then none of us would be here. Father, thank You that You didn't just leave them in their mess, nor us, but You have been writing all through human history a story, a grand story of Your redeeming people from sin, rescuing them out of sin, out of its consequences, not just now, but eternally. Father, may our heartbeat be to live holy and godly lives, to honor You with our lives rather than to disobey You. May we see how great a God You are, how great is Your love, how great is Your mercy, how great is Your grace, how great is our destiny through Jesus Christ. And may that change everything in our perspective of sin and holiness. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.